still wanted to tape that. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Father David Anderson. If you have not already seen him at lunch today, uh, he is helping us with the second phase of our uh, Theology, Faith, and Reason lecture series, which this year has focused on uh, things ecclesiastical, liturgical, and Eucharistic. Uh, Father is uh, an excellent contribution to this lecture series. Uh, he is a long devoted scholar of the Church Fathers, patristics, and particularly the liturgy. Uh, he was educated at St. Vladimir Orthodox Seminary uh, when he was uh, a student of Orthodoxy and studied under uh, the renowned Orthodox theologian Alexander Schmemann, uh, then was uh, a convert to Byzantine Catholicism. He teaches philosophy at Mendocino, uh, California, has been a priest of the Byzantine parish from which uh, Philip Gilbert hails in Ukiah, California for 37 years uh, and has some wonderful reflections to share uh, with us over the next three days concerning a number of things to introduce everyone to, I think, something that is beautiful, vital, and essential for us to know as Catholics, namely the spirituality and some aspects of the Eastern rites of the Church. John Paul II encouraged us to breathe with both lungs of the Church, and I thought it would be very fitting uh, to have Father Anderson out and to help us not only to understand uh, Eastern Catholicism, but also to participate in divine liturgy, as you probably all saw uh, on the posters. Uh, the sort of concluding highlight of Father's visit with us will be the celebration of the divine liturgy uh, this Saturday for the first time ever on Christendom campus. So I encourage you to come to as many of the talks as you are able, and if you are brand new to the divine liturgy, especially the Friday talk at 4 p.m., same place, same time, which will be a walkthrough of the divine liturgy if you have not ever uh, experienced it before might help you to more deeply participate and appreciate uh, the brief transformation of our chapel uh, for that liturgical purpose. So it's my great pleasure uh, to welcome to Christendom Father David Anderson. Thank you. Thank you for your kind welcome, uh, Professor Janoslawski, and all of you for coming. Uh, as I always do at the beginning of my talks, let's all stand and have a, have a prayer. One from the East to the Holy Spirit, one from the West to the Holy Cross, and one from everybody together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who are everywhere present, and filling all things, the treasury of all blessings, and giver of life, Come dwell within us and cleanse us from every stain and save our souls, O gracious Lord. We adore you, O Christ, and we bless you. Because by your holy cross you have redeemed the world. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, you mentioned, uh, Eric, in your welcome of me and introduction, the now uh, very famous, it's going to be one of the signature memories of, of the beloved uh, St. John Paul II, and that is the image of the both lungs. And therefore, I would propose that uh, these next few days will be my 
small way of, of trying to provide for you a, a bit of an exercise in respiratory therapy. <laughs> uh, and I would presume also, now I've, I've been introduced uh, by, by Philip to a number of you who, who do have some, either you are Eastern Catholics or have some experience with Eastern Catholics, but I would presume also that uh, there are a number of you for whom this is indeed an introduction and perhaps this is the first opportunity that you've even seen uh, an Eastern Catholic priest and it will certainly be the first time on this campus that the Byzantine liturgy, one of many Eastern liturgies, there's more than one, uh, as we will see, one of the features of what we have come to call the West, though uh, as we will also see, I hope, we must not use those expressions uh, West and East as if they were uh, little boxes to stuff things in or, or sausage skins. Uh, because if we do that, that's the beginning of what happened uh, as the centuries passed in the church where the Greeks and the Latins increasingly had difficulty understanding each other. They did not speak each other's languages anymore. Uh, they became strangers to each other and they thought that they could describe each other with a lot of neat little labels uh, rather than truly encountering. And that is what I would hope that we could do just a little of, and it can only be, of course, in a few talks, uh, just a little on the one hand, whereas on the other hand, the opportunity to celebrate the liturgy together is not a little thing, it's a very great thing, because in the liturgy is found not only an expression of a particular church, but the entire life of the kingdom of God and the communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for which we have been created. I wanted to begin with a little bit about myself, uh, not only because I'm going to be here with you a few days and it's always helpful to know a little bit about somebody who's speaking to you, but because that little bit is uh, illustrative of what we are going to be speaking of, uh, for example, I, am, I have been now for going on 32 years a parish priest, as well as a teacher for longer than that time. And my parish, which for the last 15 years has been in this little uh, town in Northern California, two hours north of San Francisco, where uh, they grow grapes officially and something else unofficially a great deal uh, and the something else is now I was mentioning to a couple who had came who came here early today now the primary generator of revenue in the county I live uh, but there in in Ukiah California by the way that uh, incidentally that uh, name from the Pomo native language means the deep valley and it is a deep valley that we live in the little mission parish there, that of which for which I am the priest, is on the one hand uh, numerically very small. In fact, from 
a Roman Catholic perspective, it would be almost impossible to understand how one could keep such a small group going with, with their own priests. Uh, it's only when everybody is there, only about 65 people, including all the children, and we have a good many. Uh, on the other hand, it is geographically very large. The people that come, come from three counties and sometimes more. It is the only Eastern Catholic parish of any kind uh, north of the San Francisco Bay Area all the way up to Oregon. And that's, if you're familiar somewhat with the geography of the Western United States, that's a large area. And so uh, I have this paradox of being the priest of uh, what, what amounts to almost half a state, <laughs> yet my flock is a very small group of people. And another expression of that is... The diocese, or sometimes the expression eparchy is used, both those words, diocese and eparchy, come from the Roman Empire, which is referring to a geographical district. Uh, my diocese is the Ukrainian Catholic Diocese of Chicago. So I'm a priest in California, but my bishop is in Chicago. And the uh, limits, geographical limits of the diocese go from approximately... Detroit to Honolulu. <laughs> and then there are other groupings of Eastern Catholics. I have a handout for you that I hope you'll find helpful. I found over the years, it's a kind of uh, genealogy chart of the various churches. And uh, it's very handy, especially for someone who's first encountering the Eastern churches because the Eastern churches often appear to be a mystery to Roman Catholics. If they're even aware of us existing, they can't understand how, how we have our own bishops. And in fact, there's more than one group of us. We have overlapping jurisdictions. There is another group of Eastern Catholics called the Melkites, whose diocese is the entire United States of America, for example. And uh, the reason for that is, is that uh, there are not many of us compared to the great numbers uh, of Roman Catholics in, in North America. And that is because, I think, as you are aware, uh, historically, that the Americas, when people began to come here from the Christian parts of the world, uh, those who came were overwhelmingly from the... Uh, 16th century on Western Europeans, as we would say. And therefore, the expression of Christianity that has uh, numerically prevailed in the Americas has been that of Latin Rite Roman Catholicism, as well as from that movement in the 16th century that divided Latin Rite Roman Catholicism, the Protestant Reformation. Whereas the Eastern churches both those in communion with Rome and, not, and those not in communion with Rome have been a kind of mysterious reality that sometimes people have, they, they've had some encounter with Greek or Russian Orthodox or maybe with some Byzantine Catholics, but they don't really understand much about it and, and how, it, how these churches relate with the, the huge at least from the perspective of this part of the world, the huge Roman church. So 
I'll try to make that a little bit clearer by way of introduction today. Uh, the other aspect uh, personally that uh, I would mention comes from my family background. My, my family background is in terms of lineage from the church, and I would maintain, now it's true that of course our, our new life in Christ begins with baptism, and then we fulfill that baptism all the days of our life. We are baptized once, as says the creed, for the remission of sins, but the effects of that baptism continue throughout this life and, and into the life to come and unto the endless ages in the glory of the kingdom of God. So it is not precisely accurate for anybody to say, uh, I was born a Catholic or even born a Christian. Christians are made. However, uh, we can't go to the other extreme and ignore someone like St. Irenaeus of Lyon, who in the third century, he was uh, among the first who could boast of having Catholic parents. And he said, I drank in the gospel with my mother's milk. And there's something to be said for that. Uh, I would hope that that one of the goals of this college would to be form those who will uh, be the, the heart of families who will have children that drink in the gospel with their mother's milk. Well, in the case of my family, the, that sort of lineage does come from my mother's side because my father's people uh, came from Norway and they were Lutherans. My father did later enter the church, but it was uh, when I was a child, so he does not come into this early part of the story in that way. Uh, he does in, in many other central ways, but not that, not that are uh, appropriate to speak of today. My mother's people came from Austria-Hungary before the First World War, the Habsburg Empire. And they were what are called uh, officially Carpatho-Russians or Carpatho-Russians. That means the westernmost expansion of those northeastern Slavic people that have come to be known as the Rus, Russians, Ukrainians, Belorussians, Carpatho-Russians. For many centuries, uh, they had been isolated and then found themselves under the, the rule of the Habsburgs, a Roman Catholic empire, where they were a minority. And as a result of that, because at that time they were not in communion with Rome, the majority of them chose uh, in two unions, two church unions, one in 1596 and the other in 1603, the unions of Brest and Ugerod, the bishops decided to enter, or at least most of the bishops decided to enter into union with the Roman church while retaining their particular tradition. Well, my maternal grandparents' story, and this is why it is illustrative, when they came to this country just before 1900, came to live in central Pennsylvania, and there, my grandfather tended to gravitate, though he was an Eastern Catholic by birth, 
tended to gravitate to the Latin tradition. Whereas my grandmother did not, and in fact, and here uh, begins uh, a very important part of the Eastern Catholic story in this country, my grandmother was a number, was a uh, one of a number of Eastern Catholics who uh, followed a priest by the name of Alexis Toth. Alexis Toth was the first Eastern Catholic priest to come to the United States. Uh, he uh, came to Minneapolis, where a group of Eastern Catholics wished to start a parish. There were no Eastern Catholic bishops here at the time, no Eastern Catholic hierarchy. And as a result, when Father Toth came, he presented his credentials to the local Roman Catholic bishop, who at that time was uh, Archbishop John Ireland. And unfortunately, within 10 minutes of his arrival, Archbishop Ireland and Father Toth had gotten into a shouting match. <laughs> the reason why that had happened, one must see it in its greater historical context, is Archbishop John Ireland was having a rather difficult time of his own. He was passing through what is called the trustee controversy. Trustee controversy involved a number of Catholics who arrived in this country, generally not from Ireland, but from Germany, Italy, later Poland, and who wished to have each parish have the rights over their property and who actually wished that there be uh, dioceses in the United States that were by nationality. So, of course, Bishop uh, John Ireland, who by his last name, that, that expresses his lineage, thought that, that, that this would be the ruin of American Catholicism. And now he has this, this Eastern Catholic priest coming who is just another bad example of this fragmented ethnic Catholicism in his eyes. <laughs> Father Alexis Toth was also a contentious man. And he did not he did not see that he had to justify his position as being the representative of an ancient and venerable tradition of the church. So alas, uh, they, they, uh, the shouting match did not end amicably, and Father Toth found himself on the street. And from the street he went to the railroad station, and from the railroad station he went to San Francisco, and in San Francisco, he found Bishop Vladimir, the Russian Orthodox missionary bishop in California. And he said, the Latin Catholic bishop refuses to receive me and my people. Will you receive me? And the Russian Orthodox bishop said, gladly. And as a result of that, well over half the Eastern Catholics that came to these shores over the next 50 years into the 20th century uh, once again, we're no longer in union with, with the Roman Catholic Church because of the unfortunate treatment by a bishop, you see. So, my grandparents were, were, uh, had different minds over that issue. So, from then until now in my family, three generations, we, we find uh, Latin Catholics and Eastern Catholics and Orthodox. My 
uh, brother, God rest his soul, uh, was, uh, although all of us, all the three of us children in our family, because we were born of an Eastern Catholic mother, are canonically considered Eastern Catholics, my, br my brother spent his life once he returned to the church in the Latin church. I was, I with my sister and brother, because once my parents had moved to upstate New York where there was no Eastern Catholic church of any, any kind, we were raised in the Latin church, so I'm a kind of hybrid in that way, you see. And my sister, who lives down near Orlando, Florida, is, uh, uh, belongs to an Orthodox parish, and her husband is a deacon in the local Orthodox parish there. So there, it's gone on for, for generations. So this question of what, uh, what is the East and what is the West, well, of course, we know that, historically speaking, these words come from the east and west of the ancient Roman Empire. And east means what today would be uh, Egypt, Syria, Palestine, anything east of Palestine toward the Persian border where Roman rule and ended. North of Syria, particularly Asia Minor, what today is Turkey. Asia Minor was the cradle of the church for, for uh, really uh, a couple of centuries. More Christians uh, percentage-wise in Asia Minor than to be found anywhere else, especially in the 3rd and 4th century. Asia Minor, and then parts of, of the Balkans. That's considered the East. The West, of course, is everything else in Western Europe, all the way uh, to Britain. Ireland, as you know, was never part of the Roman Empire. Uh, Northern Africa as well, excluding uh, Egypt, what today would be uh, Libya and Tunisia and Algeria and Morocco, which, of course, in in uh, the days of the Roman Empire was a place for transplanted Romans to go where they could live the old Roman values in a way that, was, that they regarded as more wholesomely than in, in Rome itself, which was becoming, in the eyes of many Romans, quite a decadent place. So it is in North Africa, for example, that we find the first fathers of the church that write in Latin, Tertullian, for example, is a North African. Uh, the church in Rome itself, and perhaps a number of you know this already, for the first three centuries primarily expressed itself through the Greek language, not Latin. Uh, for example, Clement of Rome, the first of the Apostolic Fathers, wrote his epistle to the Corinthians in Greek. Justin Martyr wrote in Greek. How many of you have, uh, I know that you, so I think many of you will have done this because you spend a semester uh, in Rome and, and naturally you go to St. Peter's and go down to the Skevi underneath uh, the, the St. Peter's Basilica and you see uh, where St. Peter is buried. You see the first century. How many have done that? A number of you have done that. And if, you, if, you, uh, if it's pointed out to you, in that uh, first century necrosimum, the uh, uh, burial place, there are, there are some graffiti there from the first century. 
and the graffiti, the Christian graffiti of the first century, are either written in Greek, or if they are written in Latin, they're lit, written in Latin with Greek letters. Rome in the first three centuries of the Christian era had become a very international sort of place, and as you know, the uh, language, the international language of the Roman Empire was not Latin, but Greek. That's why the New Testament is written in Greek. It's only at the time of Pope Damasus that, and he is in the 4th century, same time as St. Jerome, at the time of Pope Damasus, Latin begins to be used regularly as the liturgical language for the Church of Rome. It, for those, and this is not meant to be, these talks are ne not meant to deal with uh, obscure historical liturgical technicalities, but on the other hand, there's a few uh, very interesting examples. Uh, the reason why we don't know much about the earliest days of liturgy in the Roman church is there is so little left of what the early Greek liturgy in the Roman church was like. Uh, one, of the, one of the great early liturgical mysteries and one of the great treasures of the Church of Rome is the Roman Eucharistic Canon, what in the Novus Ordo is called Eucharistic Prayer One. It's the oldest Eucharistic prayer of, of the Church of Rome. And of course, we know it in Latin now, but most likely it existed, at least the principal parts of it existed earlier in Greek, but there are no extant manuscripts of it. So, to say that one can easily label what is Eastern and what is Western, even geographically one can, but when it gets beyond that, it becomes less and less easy to do so. So at first, I would like to discourage uh, all of us against that kind of facile labeling. And some examples of it are uh, such things as, well, the West is concerned with redemption and justification and sanctification. The East is concerned with deification. Or another, another uh, similar way of, of speaking, the West is focused on the crucifixion of Christ. The East is focused on the resurrection. These are, these are the kind of things that happen when church traditions don't really understand each other anymore. I understand that you had a uh, lecture last week in which it was made clear that if one looks at the two uh, primary theological voices of the West, Augustine and Aquinas, that one can find deification in Augustine and Aquinas just as easily, well, maybe not quite just as easily, but still there. Any, any, uh, every bit as much as one can find it in the Greek fathers. So uh, this, this notion that we can easily label, uh, perhaps that's one of the best things we should discard when trying to come to know with a greater fullness and, and to breathe with both lungs within the church. Now, there is a... Uh, statement in the Eastern Code of Canon Law. And it's one that I would like to, in fact, I think I will write it down. 
Catholic Church is a communion of particular churches. The important thing about this statement is that it has church in the singular and churches in the plural. The Catholic Church singular is a communion of particular churches in the plural. It is neither exclusively singular nor plural. Therefore, the church is not exclusively singular nor plural. And why is that? It is because God is neither exclusively singular nor plural. The reason why the canon law of the church speaks of the church in the singular and in the plural is because God is one and three. God is not one first and three later. God is not one essentially and three accidentally. We, we smile, but we must realize that that is what sets us apart from all of the other religions of the world. This insistence that oneness and threeness are not self-contradictory. The other religions of the world, those that are theist at all, of course, because there are non-theistic religions. I teach uh, world religions. It's one of the courses I teach, so one must be very uh, careful to point that out. But the theistic religions of the world outside of traditional Christianity, Trinitarian Christianity, either are exclusively monotheist or tending, at least, on the other hand, to some sort of polytheism. But it is only in the church where we find this, this unity of oneness and threeness. Now, one of the greatest of the teachers of the Eastern Church, one of the greatest of the Greek fathers, he's known in the West as St. Gregory Nazianzen, or St. Gregory of Nazianzus. Uh, we call him, in, in the Eastern tradition, St. Gregory the Theologian. He is the best friend of St. Basil the Great. He lived in the 4th century in Cappadocia, in what today would be southeast Turkey, north of Syria. In what then, as I mentioned, was the, the uh, center of the Christian world. St. Gregory is called the theologian, and he is the only one to be called that in the tradition of the Eastern Church, other than St. John the Apostle. Uh, the Byzantine tradition is traditionally very stingy with the use, the formal use of the expression theologian. Of course, in modern times, anybody and everybody is a theologian. And restricts it formally, 
Uh, now, there's, there's a third saint who's, who is called Saint Simeon, the new theologian, but even there the, the theologian is modified by new. But it's only Saint John the Apostle, the evangelist, and Saint Gregory that in the Eastern tradition, the Byzantine tradition specifically, are called, the the, are called theologians. Because, of course, theology is words about God. Words that are vehicles that convey, as far as words can, the reality of God. The reason why St. John the Apostle is called St. John the Theologian by Byzantine Christians is because of the words of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the theologian of the Trinity because he speaks also of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father whom the Son will send. St. Gregory the Theologian, the reason why I'm quoting him, it has to do with, again, illustrating this not simply as a little statement from canon law, but something that is revelatory of the whole life of the church. St. Gregory the Theologian says that God has to be three. Has to be. Uh, two and four will not do, <laughs> says Gregory. And what certainly will not do is one in the sense of being exclusively one, being alone. Our God is not the alone God. That is what distinguishes us from Judaism and Islam. Judaism and Islam have the God that is alone. To observant Jews and Muslims, we are all tritheists. Polytheists, even. Or to the more extreme in the Muslim camp, we are blasphemers because we maintain that the one God can even have a son and we can have a relationship with those persons. That is an affront to monotheism, they say. St. Gregory, on the other hand, says that, that in no way accidentally, but essentially, God is three because he says, were God only to be two, and some were suggesting at his time that, remember this is the time of the, of the Arian controversy, Arius who said that the son is a creature and had a beginning in time. There was a time, said Arius, when the father was alone and the son was not. Therefore, there was a time when God was not father. And God began to be a father when he made the son. That's Arius's heresy. And there were some who were saying at the time of St. Gregory, well, we've settled the divinity of the Son, and two is enough. Let's not go through the same thing about the Holy Spirit. But St. Gregory said, ah, we must. Two is not enough. Not only is two not enough because God has revealed himself to us as three, but the reason why God has revealed to us himself to us as three is that he must be three, because were it simply the Father and the Son, the Son as the perfect image of the Father, eternally begotten from the Father, that union between the Son and the Father, says St. Gregory, if, if, were there not the Holy Spirit, would be a closed union. Closed union. For God to open himself to us, not that we would become 
divine by nature, not that we would become divine persons, but that we would become partakers of the divine nature. For God, to, ma to make that possible for us, it is so because God is himself that communion of persons which is most perfectly expressed in God's threeness. So, the unity and trinity in God is what is reflected in this canonical statement. The Catholic Church is a communion of particular churches. Now this should teach us the proper way, and, and many, many Catholics, both Eastern and Western, do not use church vocabulary in a precisely accurate way as we all should. And by that I mean specifically, uh, I have noticed that there is a little nervousness among Catholics, and perhaps if I may, if, if you think that I'm being biased, you must call me on it, but I think especially among uh, Latin Catholics with this notion of plurality. One church, one holy Catholic and apostolic church, what is this? Churches. We don't, perhaps we are a little bit allergic to that expression. But yet, it is so in the church's own self-definition. And it is so because it is in God's self-revelation. Both one and three. So, there is both singularity and plurality in the church. So everyone in the church belongs to one of the particular churches. That's why it's not correct, by the way, for to say what a lot of us say, I think, a lot of the time. I am Latin right. I am Byzantine right. One isn't a right. <laughs> one doesn't belong to a right. One belongs to a church that uses a rite. What is a rite? A rite is all of the expression of the church's worship. So a rite is one dimension and, and the central dimension, because liturgy is the central expression of the church's life. A rite is the central expression of the life of each particular church, but one belongs to, to a church. One is a Roman Catholic. One is a Byzantine Catholic. One is a Melkite Catholic. One is a Ukrainian Catholic. One is a Maronite Chaldean. Uh, there's 20, how many did you say? Uh, 24 now. The latest is because a, a new group of uh, Eastern Catholics has been created in uh, Eritrea that are, that are now distinct. They, the Catholics of the Ethiopian rite in Eritrea now have their own particular jurisdiction. So this, I'll, I'll pass out to you now. I made a whole bunch of them. Uh, actually, Philip did it for me and passed them around. I want to take some from your friends. This is a handy thing to have.
if you uh, look at the side that says genealogy of the Christian churches, and then I've added my two cents by writing in and liturgical traditions. The back side of the sheet, we'll call that, the genealogy side we'll call the front side of the sheet, and the back side of the sheet, uh, the particular churches of Christendom, because this was originally made for uh, a liturgical study group. But look at that back sheet, the particular churches of Christendom. And there you have, at the top, the Apostolic Church of Jerusalem, the beginning. You will receive power, said the Lord to his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then throughout Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Well, this is specifically how that expansion of the faith to the ends of the earth took place. And therefore, that you see many branches that come out of the Apostolic Church of Jerusalem. St. Paul, in his lifetime, fulfilled those words of the Lord that his followers would preach him eventually to the ends of the earth because for someone living in Palestine to go all the way from Palestine to Rome, to go to the heart of the empire, was going figuratively to the ends of the earth. Likewise, we see, and this is very important, especially in regard to these expressions, Eastern and Western, again, remembering that Eastern and Western come from the context of the East and the West of the Roman Empire. What about those places that the Roman Empire never directly ruled over. The right-hand arm points to the Persian Empire. The Roman Empire and the Persian Empire were historic rivals and enemies. What about uh, in the central, uh, the central left succession where you see uh, Melanchares in India? What about, not mentioned on this chart because the church in Ireland... Uh, becomes uh, associated with the Church of Rome very early from its beginning. So Ireland is not mentioned here. What about Ireland, where the Roman Empire never ruled? What about places like Armenia, never part of the Roman Empire, on the right? What about the Ethiopians, the center right on the bottom box? No Roman rule there either. Well, whether or not the Roman Empire directly ruled over all of these places that are described as having particular and apostolic churches, churches of apostolic institution, nevertheless, all of the particular churches come into existence within the context of the incarnation and redemption of the human race through Jesus Christ our Lord that takes place at a particular time in a particular place. N nothing vague about it. 
There's a uh, rather famous saying, the mystery of particularity in the church. That there's nothing vague about how God reveals himself. God reveals himself to particular people and places and at and in the fullness of time the Son of God became man. And that fullness of time included with being within the Roman Empire of the first century. There is a wonderful Byzantine hymn that is sung on Christmas Eve. And you have to understand its poetic sense. We uh, feel far away sometimes from from first century uh, Roman rule in Palestine. But this is what the hymn says. When Augustus ruled alone upon the earth, the many kingdoms of men came to an end. And when you became man of the pure virgin, the many gods of idolatry were destroyed. The cities of the world passed under one single rule. And we, the faithful, came to believe in one sovereign Godhead. The peoples were enrolled by the decree of Caesar, and we, the faithful, were enrolled in the name of the Holy Trinity when you, our God, became man. Now, uh, a... A modern perspective might look at that and say, well, that's a lot of imagination. Augustine didn't rule alone upon earth. He might have thought he did. But even Augustus knew about places like China and India where he didn't rule. And he didn't know at all about the Americas. The many gods of idolatry did not come to an end when Jesus our Lord was made flesh. In fact, they seem to rage more strongly afterwards for a while. And even onto our own time. Can we say that the gods of idolatry are dead? So how can the church pray these words? Well, it's from the viewpoint of eternity. Subspecie eternitatis. That from the viewpoint of what is accomplished from God who lives in the eternal now, by his intervention in history, the fullness of time has come. And that intervention in history included being born as a baby, the Son of God being born as a baby, in the Roman Empire of the first century. So all of the particular churches have their genesis from that intervention of God. Now, you see the various families that are established in in the church, the the developments that occur. From the Roman Empire, you have Rome and the church that is associated with the city of Rome. Because the church of Rome is the one apostolic church in the West. What is meant by that? Rome is the only place in the West where apostles came personally. Peter and Paul came to Rome. Before Peter and Paul came to Rome, they had been in many places, especially Peter. Uh, Especially Paul, excuse me. But there is no other place in what we would call the West now where the foundation of the church, the apostolic foundation of the church, uh, 
was provided by one of the twelve apostles, Rome only. That is why the centrality in the West of the Apostolic Church of Rome, one of the reasons why it has always been so central from the start. On the other hand, in the East, in Greece, in, in Asia Minor, in Palestine, in Syria, in Egypt, there are dozens and dozens of apostolic churches. Paul went to many places. Peter went to Antioch. Mark went to, uh, to Alexandria. Thomas went to India. So these particular churches of apostolic origin, on the one hand, we see a tendency within them from the start of centrality in Rome. Uh, notice that from Rome in this chart comes the Roman Catholic Church, the church that, that is built on the foundation of Peter and Paul bringing the gospel of Christ to Rome. Yet the whole rest of this chart is an expression of multiplicity that apostolic churches are to be found many places outside of Rome as well. So in the second arm from Cappadocia, Asia Minor, and Syria, we have that whole bottom left listing of first Constantinople, the new city of the 4th century, Constantine's new city to be the capital of his empire. And all of those churches that have therefore been given the title Byzantine. Now that's another term that we should have some specificity about because it's a relatively modern expression, 19th century. Byzantium, of course, is the little town uh, in Asia Minor around which Constantine built the new city, the great new city of Constantinople. Therefore, the, the historians beginning, I, I, it might have been before the 19th century, I don't know, does anybody know the first person to use the word Byzantine? I don't know, maybe someone can find it out. But it is a recent practice, and Byzantine equals that having to do with Constantinople and the empire, the Roman Empire that maintained its center in Constantinople. In terms of the church, the Byzantine church, therefore, includes everything that was evangelized by the church of Constantinople, the Greeks, the Russians, the Ruthenians, or the Carpatho-Russians, the people that my mother's descended from, the Ukrainians, the Melkites, people of the Middle East, Syria, Palestine, and, and Egypt, Romanians, Belarusians, Serbs, Bulgarians, and others. Most of these churches, over time, developed within themselves both an expression that was not in communion with Rome, and then later on, through these unions that took place, an Eastern Catholic expression. If you look at the third arm from Antioch, Antioch would be the third greatest city of the Roman Empire after Rome and Alexandria. If you look at the right 
branch from the Antioch box. There you see the Catholic and Orthodox churches of Syria, as well as the particular church of Lebanon called the Maronites, as well as one of the churches of South India called the Malankara Church. From the left branch from the Antioch box, you find another mention of the Melkites who are of Antiochian tradition but adopted the Byzantine rite, the Byzantine ritual. Then the right-hand side of the chart shows, uh, beginning with the Alexandria box, Alexandria was the second greatest city of the Roman Empire, and St. Mark brought the faith there in the first century. The people of Egypt in the first century were divided between those who spoke Greek and those who spoke the ancient Egyptian language Coptic. So from a very early time, there were two linguistic expressions in Egypt, the, the Greek Alexandrine expression and the Coptic one. And from Egypt, Ethiopia is evangelized, and in both uh, the Coptic and the, and the Ethiopian church, there are now uh, Catholic and Orthodox expressions, not in communion with Rome, in communion with Rome. I'm not going to, I, 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 there's not time in these talks to go through a summary of the unfortunate division that took place between the Church of Rome and the, the rest of the Eastern churches because I don't think that's necessarily part of, a, of an introduction of this sort. Then up toward the top right, we have the Armenian church. The Armenian nation was the first nation that could be called a Christian nation ethnically. The whole people with the king of Armenia adopted the faith in the fourth century. Likewise, there are Armenians, uh, both both apostolic, as they call themselves, the Armenian Apostolic Church, not at, at, at present in communion with Rome, but then there's the part of it that is the, the Armenian Catholic Church. Then the furthest right branch, something that's very interesting and uh, not so well known. The Empire of Persia, which would uh, contain today's Iran and Iraq, and the great uh, capital of Persia then would be Seleucia Ctesiphon, uh, the ruins of which are near the modern-day Baghdad. Many, both uh, Roman and Byzantine Christians, are unaware of this, this fact. Let's uh, imagine ourselves in the year 800. And if the question were to, ask, to be asked, in the year 800, which great bishop in the church... Now, by the year 800, there have been some divisions in the apostolic churches, but we're not speaking of those just now. Which great bishop uh, in, in the Christian world, in the year 800, had the largest number of faithful for which he was responsible? And, of course, you know the answer because where I've saved the question for. It's not the Pope in Rome. It's not the Patriarch in Constantinople. It's not the, uh, the Bishop of Alexandria in Egypt. It is the Catholicos, as he called himself, 
of the church of Seleucid Ctesiphon near present-day Baghdad. More Christians there at that time than to be found in Europe or North Africa or in the Middle East. Fascinating, isn't it? We think... We think of that part of the world as a a place from where Christianity has almost been erased because in our time that's come to be the case. Some of the last remaining members of those apostolic churches, the Chaldean Catholics, have had to flee from from Iraq and take refuge all over the world and in our own country as, as well. So... This gives you an idea of of the diversity of the particular churches. Now, if you look just briefly, and then we'll have to bring this to an end, have a little time for perhaps a few questions. Here we have a genealogical table of the liturgical traditions. And here, the liturgical traditions are divided into three basic groupings. uh, That of Rome that of Antioch, that of Alexandria. Now, to be accurate, this uh, should say genealogy of the Christian churches and liturgical traditions in use today. Because, for example, in the Roman grouping, uh, we have mentioned there, in addition to the Roman rite, There are also the non-Roman rites that use the Latin language but have their own unique expression of the liturgy and sacraments and divine office of the church. The Ambrosian and the Mozarabic, but there were others in the early church. There was the Gallican rite. There was the Celtic rite, for example. But now the Roman rite has become overwhelmingly predominant, though the Ambrosian in the Church of Milan and the Mozarabic Rite of Spain are still maintained in certain places. In the center we have the Antiochian tradition with its uh, basic, well, two subdivisions, that of uh, Antioch passing through Asia Minor and Cappadocia, expressing itself in Constantinople and the Byzantine churches, and then also in a unique way in the Armenian tradition. And then in the right arm from the Antiochian box, the West Syrian and the East Syrian expressions, or rites, found in the Syrian Maronite and Malankara Church of India. The Maronite Church is the Church of Lebanon, Malankara Church of India. The East Syrian in the Chaldean, found in Iraq today, and the Malabaris, found on the southwestern coast of India. Now, as you see by the crosses, all of the the groups with crosses have a presence and an established hierarchy in the United States. And then finally, the right-hand arm, uh, Alexandria, with its Coptic and Ethiopian, we would have to add to it now, Eritrean uh, expressions. Now, all... All of these liturgical traditions of the particular churches, what do they contain? They contain not simply a liturgical tradition, but also a theological tradition, 
a spiritual tradition, when we say spiritual tradition, a way of articulating the mysteries of the faith, how they actually operate in the transformation of our lives, a canonical tradition, a tradition of saints. So you see how very, very rich the inheritance of the church is. And I thought that these few remarks, and especially having at least a, a somewhat organized expression of it, might make that a little less of a mystery to you. Okay? And to conclude, this uh, a few lines of a poem by uh, someone who actually was not in communion with any of the particular churches of Christendom, but a great poet, John Donne. John Donne was, was once a Roman Catholic, but in the troubles of the, of, Engli of the English Church of the Reformation, found himself with the Church of England. But I like to think uh, still uh, with, with a, a Catholic mind and heart, and one hopes that in the life to come he found once again the fullness of the Church. Anyway, uh, John Donne has a, a not-so-well-known poem. It's not one of his famous ones, but it's called On the Annunciation and the Passion. And uh, it was written on the occasion of something that happens only once or twice every century or so. It will happen next year, by the way. That the day of the Annunciation, March 25th, will fall on Good Friday. Uh, now, of course, the, uh, the Latin, the Roman liturgical tradition, has an expeditious way of dealing with this. When the Annunciation falls not only on Good Friday, but anywhere in Holy Week or Easter Week, it's simply transferred to the first free day after Easter Week has been finished usually the Monday after, uh, after uh, the, the Thomas Sunday or the Divine Mercy Sunday, as it's called now. It is not so in the East. In the East, it has been established from the 8th century because, of course, our liturgical norms are part of the life of our own particular church. Therefore, they are unique. Uh, and our liturgical norms say that the Annunciation is never to be transferred. So that even if the Annunciation should fall on Good Friday, even if it should fall on Easter, a whole very, uh, uh, on, the, on the one hand, on the surface of it looking, compl looking complex, but if you get down into the heart of it, you see it's quite simple. The two feasts are celebrated together. So uh, it will be the Annunciation fully celebrated on Good Friday, fully celebrated for us Byzantines next year. And John Donne, who I don't know if he knew anything about, about that at all, but he wrote these words. This, these are a few lines from his poem on the Annunciation and the Passion. And I think it says a lot about everything we've tried to touch upon. All this and all between this day hath shown the abridgment of Christ's story, which marks are, as in plain maps, as in plain maps, 
The furthest west is east of the angels Ave and Consummatum Est. So furthest west is east and the angels hail is it is consummated. The same mystery celebrated in the apostolic churches, the same fullness of the transformative Trinitarian life. St. Gregory the Theologian, whom I quoted earlier, says the Father is light, the Son is light, the Holy Spirit is also light, guiding all creation in light, transforming all creation with the light of the uncreated Trinity. And that is, of course, when the churches are living in the fullness of their tradition. That is being accomplished in all of them, and that's what we should be striving for now, each in our particular church. And one of the facets of that is coming to know how we all together distinctly appropriate to ourselves the saving mystery of the Holy Trinity and express it in the history and liturgy and saints of the particular churches. So this, this today was intended to be that sort of introduction. Tomorrow I want to give a very specific talk, a reflection on how the words of institution for the Holy Eucharist are used in the Gospels and in the early liturgies of the church. So that's it for today, and, and we can have a few questions if you like. Yes? Um, so you mentioned the Annunciation and it falling on Good Friday. Yes. Would the reason for that being that you would celebrate those together would be the completion of the Annunciation happening on Good Friday? Well, the, the point is that <coughs> the Annunciation, you see, that's a very good question. The, the reason why uh, the Annunciation is celebrated on the 25th of March is because uh, the, the testimonies to this are found primarily in, in, the, in the Latin tradition, uh, whether it's in both Tertullian and Hippolytus referred to it, and then later St. Augustine. They all mention, and then Chrysostom, having received this from them, uh, says that our Lord died on the cross on the same day in which he was conceived. They do not, these sources do not comment about how this has come to be held in the church. It seems to have been an oral tradition that was passed on, and that's all we can say about it, but coming from the earliest days of the church. Now, what's interesting is that uh, modern scholars, in, in trying to determine the precise date of the crucifixion of our Lord, have in fact pretty much reached a consensus that it was in the year 30, uh, not the year 33, but the year 30, in which, in fact, the eve of the Passover, following the chronology of St. John's Gospel, our Lord is, is crucified on the eve of the Passover. And that's important because that, that dating is, it has been consistently followed both by the Latin and the Byzantine traditions, the so-called so Johannine chronology. 
The eve of the Passover in the year 30 was indeed the 25th of March. But then these early sources mention, therefore, that because they had inherited this oral tradition that the Lord was, was crucified on the day of his conception, you see, it's from that that the celebration of Christmas on the 25th of December derives. Many people have, and the, this was all the rage now for the last uh, nearly two centuries, we've been told, have we not, that uh, Christmas was the attempt by the church to baptize a pagan festival, the festival of, of the, of the Sol Invictus, you know, the, the, uh, the sun god, the birth of the sun god. Uh, the trouble was that the only celebration of the birth of the sun god in Rome was instituted by the emperor Aurelian, toward the end of the 3rd century. And there are, there's plenty of evidence that even before that time, the Christians had begun the celebration of the Incarnation. So the, the, even the best modern liturgical scholars are calling into question this, no, this notion that Christmas began from a desire to, to pagan, or to, to uh, uh, you know, uh, adapt a pagan celebration. In fact, most likely, the celebration of Christmas began from the, the celebration of the Annunciation in the early church. And it's not that no one is ever going to uh, you know, declare a dogmatic weight these days because you, one doesn't make dogmas about that. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's, it is uh, a tradition that does have some weight behind it. So it does seem that those who, now, as I think you know uh, from the early liturgy, maybe you do, and maybe you don't, but I think some of you will, the celebration of Christmas begins in the Roman church. It's, one, it's the liturgical legacy of the Roman church. The East accepted it from the Roman church. Most of the other liturgical celebrations of the year began in the East and spread West. But Christmas, and with it, the Nativity of St. John the Baptist, and the Annunciation began in the West and spread East. So it's clear that those who began it, whenever they began it, began it with the conviction that they were celebrating it as the true anniversary of these days. And that in addition, there was this link between the conception of our Lord, the reason why he is incarnate, of, we'll say something more about that, uh, tomorrow specifically, the reason why he is incarnate of the Virgin Mary is that he may die. Because, as the prayers of the church say, God, as God, cannot die. God, in order to save us from the last enemy, uh, that is death, must die. He must experience death on our behalf. And he does so in the person of his Son incarnate. The, the divine nature does not die, but a divine person takes upon himself human nature and experiences death in the flesh. So, of course, there is, there is a marriage. What does, what does the Dunn poem say? The abridgment of Christ's story, which marks one. So that is, that's the point. Does that, does that address? Yes, it does. Okay. Uh, yes and yes. Um, and in all these various rites throughout the church, is the uh, creed the exact same throughout? Well, well, uh, uh, 
Now, that's, that's a large question, you know. The creed, of course, to which you're referring is the Nicene Creed. Now, the Nicene Creed is, by its name, the creed that is articulated at the First Ecumenical Council in 325. But it's finished at the Second Ecumenical Council in 381. So, uh, the, the initial draft of the Nicene Creed simply ended by saying, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. Right. And that's it. The rest of it came later and is probably authored by uh, Basil, the Great, young, Basil the Great's younger brother, Gregory of Nyssa. Basil the Great, Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory the Theologian are the three Cappadocian fathers, a kind of trinity of Greek fathers. <laughs> and uh, that creed at, at the third ecumenical council, Council of Ephesus in 431, was prescribed in that council to be used at baptismal professions of faith first. Only later does it come into liturgical usage. The, having the creed as part of the celebration of the Mass or the Divine Liturgy happened only gradually. And actually one of the last churches to do it was Rome. Rome was very conservative in its liturgical development. Rome did not like newfangled things. Uh, and, and for example, to, well, this is something that may surprise you. Uh, Holy Week, as we know it. No, I'm not talking about the early Christian Paschal Vigil. That's been there from the start. I, I mean, Holy Week as we know it, day by day, you know. That's, that comes in the 4th century. It didn't exist before that. And it comes from the Church of Jerusalem. From the, not surprisingly, that's where it took place. Once the persecutions are over, Constantine has built the great churches over the sites. So, Holy Week begins. It's, much of it is the, is the inspired creation of St. Cyril of Jerusalem. Pilgrims come, and the popularity of Holy Week spreads. It takes Rome to somewhere between the papacies of Leo the Great and Gregory the Great to finally uh, adopt Holy Week. Leo's, we have St. Leo's sermons for, for Easter. And the gospel for which St. Leo preaches on Easter, this would be for the Easter Vigil, the Paschal Vigil, is a complete reading of the entire Passion and Resurrection. John 18, 19, and 20. That's Leo's Gospel for the Paschal Vigil. Why? Because there isn't a Good Friday in Rome yet. There's, uh, there's fast days, but there isn't a liturgical Good Friday. So I, why did I use that example? It's, it's a, a little bit of a digression. The question was regarding the creed, yes. So the praying of the creed in the liturgy over us, over uh, until the 6th, 7th century, finally we find it everywhere. And everyone would pray the creed in, with the text that had come from the Second Ecumenical Council. And that is the text, I, because I presume this is, this is what is behind your question, that is the text without the filioque. Without, namely, saying of the Holy Spirit, uh, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. The filioque way is not there in, in, <coughs> in the early text of the creed. The filioque begins, the first mention of it we hear, we hear is in Spain, 
in the 6th century. Why is it used in Spain? Why, do, why in Spain do they start saying uh, the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son? Well, it's because Spain has the worst Arian problem. Arius denies the divinity of the Son. To say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son affirms the divinity of the Son. From Spain it spreads to Gaul. The Pope in Rome hears of it initially and, and does not approve of it. In terms of changing a text that was declared by an ecumenical council, the Council of Ephesus, to be unchanging. So, in fact, Leo... Oh, which Leo? Leo the number something. <laughs> Sorry. 61 years old now, it starts to go. Uh, Leo, in, in the... In the ninth century, had the text of the creed without the filioque inscribed on bronze tablets and put in the old St. Peter's. They still have the old tablets in the new St. Peter's. <laughs> then, however, with with uh, the Gregorian reform of the papacy beginning in the the tenth and eleventh centuries, popes come from from France and Germany who are used to the filioque. So they begin to use the creed with the filioque in Rome. This becomes a cause of contention in the church. The Eastern churches, whether they, both the Eastern churches not in communion with Rome and the Eastern churches in communion with Rome, use the creed without the filioque because it is the, the original text of the creed. Now, doctrinally, there need not be any tension here as the Catechism of the Catholic Church states. It needed the, one has to see what the context of that, of that expression proceeding from the Father and the Son means. And I don't think I will take the time now because we're ten minutes over, uh, but maybe on another occasion. There is a, particular, a, a perfectly acceptable way of both not using the filioque and using the filioque, both of which, if they are understood in their context, reflect the same faith of the Church and the Trinity. It need not be. Some, both from the West and from the East, have tried to make this and succeeded in making it yet sometimes uh, into a contentious and, div and divis divisive theological issue. But the consensus of many in the Church, from popes to theologians to leaders of the Orthodox are, are of a, at least very near a consensus that it simply need not be a divisive issue. My opinion, if you like, since you invite me here to talk, I can give you a little bit of my opinion. <laughs> my opinion is that uh, it, would, it would be provided that there were suitable instructions so it would not cause any scandal, but for the sake of the unity of the Church, I think that this is one issue that the Roman tradition needs to give on. Needs, for, for, needs to say whatever purpose the filioque served in the history of the church, that purpose would be better served now by the, the churches of East and West professing the faith in the words in which it was originally articulated. That's my opinion. Father, maybe we have time for just one more, and then there'll be ample opportunity to talk with Father. I might sure. Afterwards, so. Yes, yes, you. Yes. Um, so I was just curious when 
the code of canon law of the East, uh, of the Eastern churches that you quoted there, yes. was was written, and how that would have factored into like Eastern and Western sensibilities to a statement like this. Yes, the the now this is the code of canon law for the Eastern Catholic Church. Yes. And this was I don't because I'm not a canonist I can't it's 20th century. Okay. Uh, it's it's uh, the final text of it is during the papacy of, of Saint John Paul II. Okay. So it's a rather recent a rather recent thing. Okay. Because Eastern canon law comes from a, a number of sources. If you if you want to look at Eastern Orthodox canon law for the Church is not in communion with Rome it's a pretty unwieldy beast. And one of the great, you see one of the great uh, uh, charisms of the West, and, and traditionally has always been associated with, with Rome and the Latin language, the articulation of law. Mm-hmm. So uh, Rome has provided, I think, the church a service in this. That's the, that, by contrast, the, the gifts of the various churches can help each other. If, uh, for example, uh, in the Greek language, this is, this is a bit of a digression. It's illustrative. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I know we have to go. There, it, it is very difficult and maybe impossible, for example. I'm, I'm using this as an example how the Greek language is, is particularly well-tuned to theology. We say in the creed, translating it from, from the Greek, because the Greek is translated into, into Latin and then uh, in, from Greek and Latin into English, that concerning the incarnation, he was uh, incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man, we say in, in English. The trouble is, that's not what the original says. The original uh, says, an anthropisanta. An anthropisanta. And they didn't have to say that if they didn't want to. They could have said, in perfectly plain Greek, ginete uh, anthropo. Uh, uh, they don't say that. An anthropisanta. Well, that's a, that's a translation of the Latin. The Latin couldn't quite get the Greek either. It says that at homo facus est. He became man. Homo uh, is, of course, the, the generic term for the human race. There are no articles in Latin. Uh, so you don't know if an article is inferred or not. Greek has articles. Uh, so uh, you know in Greek that uh, no article is intended in this. It does not say in the original Greek, he became a man. That's why we don't say that, even in the English translation. We say he became man. But literally, in, in Greek, it says he was Enmanized. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty close. What says enmanized? Or you could say, and I, I don't want to get into an argument over inclusive language, of which I am not a, a, in favor of. <laughs> uh, but in, in the sense of, you know, in Greek you have anthropos, which means the human race, or mankind, and I'm all for mankind, and I don't like humankind, and all that. Uh, but uh, then you have, of course, anir is the male. So what's the context of this? Well, our Lord, in fact, did become a male, too. But the point of the creed is that 
the one who is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, consubstantial with the Father, for us men and for our salvation, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and took upon himself the entirety of human nature. He did not become a particular human being. He did not become a man in that sense. He is not, as we all, as, as we all would say, he is not a human person. He is a divine person, and he can't be two people, as Nestorius thought. So he is a divine person, and, and by saying that he is unmanned or unmanized, it means that he takes on the humanity not not of not of his own human personhood, but he takes upon himself the humanity of us all, so he can save us all. <coughs> and his personhood, the acting subject, because that's what a person is—an acting subject, someone who says "I." His personhood, through that emanization, accomplishes the salvation of the human race. Greek is very good at doing that. Latin is very good at expressing law. Uh, uh, Latin has a great facility in expressing things in few words. Greek, the more words, the better. <laughs> uh, if, you can, if you can say the prayer in in three in three concise Latin phrases, and, some, and an example of that, the collects of the Roman Mass are, are uh, expressions of liturgical genius in that way. But on the other hand, I'll give you some examples in one of the other talks, the uh, prayers of the Byzantine liturgy deliberately try to say, in as many phrases as <laughs> That's the facility of reading. We better quit. <laughs> Oh, I probably, I should have stayed up here all the time, shouldn't I? Oh, okay.